Welcome to Books and Nachos, a podcast for those of us who find excitement in the pages of a good book. From fiction to nonfiction, graphic novels, and more, we're here to help you find something great to read. Noble gorillas, learned orangutans, wise chimpanzees, oh apes, I, a man, beg leave to address you. I am Steward of Los Angeles, welcoming you back to Books and Nachos, the Venganza Media Podcast about all things in print. And if you've listened to any of our latest shows over at Sister Podcast Now Playing, you probably already know that Jacob, Arnie, and I have hopped into a capsule and blasted off on a summer-long voyage through the planet of the apes. Gold-level donors will hear detailed discussions of all eight movies in the franchise, starting with the 1968 Oscar-winning original and concluding with upcoming blockbuster Dawn of the Planet of the Apes. But before I steep myself on those Hollywood visions, I wanted to re-familiarize myself with the 50-year-old novel that inspired it all. That's right, before the remakes and reboots, before Heston and Burton, before the action figures and the Saturday morning cartoons, before all of that. Planet of the Apes was simply a short novel written by Pierre Boulle in his native French language. And if you purchased a copy of some of those earliest English translations, you might also know this story by the title Monkey Planet, which kind of sounds like a Marx Brothers comedy, not a sci-fi classic to me. I'm, I'm glad Hollywood went with calling it Planet of the Apes. I think that's a better translation. Fans of that first film adaptation may also be surprised to learn that its two most iconic moments flourishes you don't even have to have seen the movie to know. I mean, we all know these. They're nowhere to be found on the page. When astronaut Ulysses Moreau steps out of his capsule and first encounters a race of super-intelligent simians on distant planet Soros, he greets them with a polite, How do you do? I am a man from Earth. I've had a long journey. Quite a contrast from Chuck Heston bellowing, Take your stinking paws off me, you damn dirty ape! But even starker contrast is the ending. And you know what? I'm just going to spoil the book and the film right now because I don't know any other way to emphasize how different the works are than blowing the big twist that comes at the end. So if you haven't seen that movie yet and you don't want to know, turn the podcast off now, crawl out from under your rock, go watch it, come back, hit play. Okay, you ready? There is no Statue of Liberty. There is no time travel whatsoever in the book. Those were purely inventions of the two screenwriters who worked on the 1968 movie. The events in this 1963 book really do take place on a separate planet and not futuristic Earth. Boole does have his own twist ending. Maybe I should call it twist endings, plural, because some versions of the book leave out his final chapter. But I was shocked to see that these emblems of the franchise are absent from the book. That These and many other changes really forced the reader to come up with a new visualization for this story rather than relying on their remembrances of what you saw at the cinema. Now, don't mistake Pierre Boulle for a science fiction writer. None of his other stories go to outer space. He doesn't approach this concept of a world of talking monkeys the same way, say, Arthur C. Clarke or H.G. Wells would. The goal isn't to establish a realism for the premise, 
but to craft a fantasy scenario that's full of irony, social satire, that really challenges man's status on the food chain. You're closer to getting at what it's like when you think of Gulliver's Travels or Animal Farm, George Orwell. It's not John Carter on Mars. It's not about getting to the planet and experiencing this as an adventure. I don't see. Now, the book begins in the year 2500, where it's understood that space flight, intergalactic colonization, all of that is the norm. And keep in mind, at the time of this original publication, we were still six years away from reaching the moon. Space travel is just as its inception. Boole is perceiving it as a commonplace thing. And he's taken that idealism about the space race to a logical conclusion. You have these three rich French scientists deciding, almost on a lark, to pop into a private space capsule and take two years off to go visit the star Betelgeuse. It almost plays like Yale grad summering on a yacht. I mean, it's it's just a little jaunt for them. Ulysses is our main character, but the captain and designer of the ship is Professor Antel. And along for the ride is his disciple Arthur Levain, as well as a space chimp named Hector, who they're using basically to test the inhabitability of the worlds they discover, including this new planet that's in Betelgeuse's corner of the universe. Hector has no trouble breathing and adapting to the jungle climate of Soros. He just doesn't survive his encounter with a beautiful woman they christen Nova. Now, Ulysses' description of the first native they meet on Soros had me thinking back to that James Bond adventure, Dr. No, a popular movie at the time Bull would have been writing this. You know, here comes singing Ursula Andress out of the waves in that bathing suit. It's taking your breath away, but instead of her, you know, milling around for seashells, she proceeds to just grab Hector, that poor little chimp, strangle him, and then toss his corpse at the astronaut's feet within a matter of seconds. I mean... I don't even think Captain Kirk would know what to say to a space beauty that had just violently murdered a defenseless animal with her bare hands. It would have been completely shocking. So these guys conclude very quickly that Nova is a primitive, that they are on a world full of primitive human beings. And so, yeah, they're both impressed and feeling cocky that they're the smartest ones on the planet. But in truth, they simply just haven't met the dominant species. Now, Nova is a mute. She introduces the astronauts to her tribe. Nobody can speak languages, so it's kind of a pantomime at first, and these natives do not understand that they're in the presence of, really, aliens. You know, these Frenchmen are from outer space. They don't even understand the concept of what outer space could be or, or what lies above them. Then all of a sudden, there's a trumpet, and a hunting party is arriving. The natives scatter because they know what that means. And so we have a, a scene that pretty much is the same in the movie. Yuli tries to get away from an unknown danger. His friend Levain is shot and killed. Professor Antel disappears in the chaos, and he's ultimately cornered by gorillas with guns who put him in a cage. And we now realize that, indeed, this is a monkey planet. The reason why Nova was so savage towards Hector is, in this world, simians are superior and suppress human beings. Now, I mentioned that Pierre Boulle is not a science fiction writer. He actually wrote a lot about war, spy novels, and he was a prisoner of war. In World War II, uh, he was caged by the Japanese, and he wrote, I think, his most famous book, Bridge Over the River Kwai. 
And I think he draws a lot on that experience, on that previous earlier successful novel for this next section of the book, that Yuli is also in a cage with captors that speak a language he does not understand, and he, so he has to learn it. Uh, he has to learn ape language to try and communicate. It takes some time because they're not trying to teach him. Again, they have him in a cage because here human beings are test subjects. They're being experimented on. You have a one scientist, his name is Helios, who's actually doing brain research. He's trying to find repressed memories in the human beings, getting them to talk, getting them to tell their story. And what he ends up doing is lobotomizing Professor Antel, the learned scholar who came with Yuli to this planet, the one that knows how to get off of this planet. Yeah, he's taken out of the picture and put in a zoo. He's rendered dumb as all the other savages. And that fate's probably coming for Yuli, too, unless he can establish a correspondence with someone. And so that's what he really does, is that there is a chimpanzee doctor named Zira who takes a shine to him, and she ends up finding out that he, indeed, it's it's smarter than the other human beings on this planet. And she learns French, and he learns the ape language, and they really concoct a plan on how to sell him to the rest of ape society. The world of Zira is a three-tiered caste system where she is not at the top. She is a chimpanzee, and while in her definition, chimpanzees are probably the smartest, they're the true scientists of this world. They have the curiosity and the compassion to ask tough questions and, and to try and, you know, make the society a better place. They're trying to end racism. They're trying to, I guess you'd call it, promote animal rights with human beings being the animals. But they're the ones that are sort of heroic. And so a chimpanzee is the one most likely to be sympathetic about Yuli. But above them are the orangutans, who are Despite having really good memories, that's the one trait that uh, Zira will cite as good about them. They're really arrogant. They're the ones controlling and suppressing the science. She really will have a tough time getting the orangutans to announce to ape society that human beings can be just as smart as them. She has to bypass them, really. And her conflict is with Dr. Zayas, the orangutan, for much of the rest of the story. And then, of course, you have the gorillas. Those were the hunting party. They're the ones with the guns. They're the thugs. They're the hunters. They're meat eaters. And there's just no hope for Yuli having a connection with any of the gorillas. But they eventually pull it off. They have a PR campaign, and he has a speech to the public at the opportune time that's pretty similar to the way I introduced this podcast, and he kind of becomes a celebrity. He becomes a novelty, and he's allowed to walk around on a leash sometimes, but he's given better treatment than all of the other human beings here. He's maybe a pet, somewhere in between a pet. I don't think the whole society accepts him as an equal, but he's got a stay of execution from being lobotomized or used as a test animal. And during this time, he's kind of caught in a love triangle, as it were. I mean, he's been in a cage with the other natives. He 
does eventually strike up a physical relationship with Nova. She bears him a child named Sirius, but how can he intellectually connect with her? It's only a physical attraction. He actually becomes somewhat enamored with Zira, who is married to another chimpanzee, Cornelius, but who, yeah, can meet him on his intellectual level and, of course, has shown great interest in him and advocated for him. So uh, there's tension between there, and I think that's what leads into the climax of the novel, is that with this child being born, Zira has to try and hide unsuccessfully that it can talk. In fact, it can talk at a faster rate than humans or ape, and that's going to throw society off balance. She knows that if Zaius finds out that there is this child, that, well, one, it will make him very angry because it means that apes are no longer the smartest thing on the planet, but two, it will rile the gorillas to want to kill all of them, Nova, Cirrus, and Yuli, because this is the coming next generation, right? This is what's going to eclipse them. In this world of Soros, at one point, there were human beings that were dominant, and then the apes took over, and now this Cirrus generation is going to take over them. They can see the end is coming, and so... They have to get him off the planet. He has to go back home. He's wanted to do that anyway. So they have to get him back to the yacht, as it were. The yacht has been in orbit around this planet. They came down on a little raft that was destroyed. But apes have a space program. They can put him in a capsule along with his son. There's not enough room for Professor Antel. I don't think he would want to go anyway. He's a stupid person at this point due to the lobotomy. But... Father, wife, and child, human being, get into a monkey spaceship to go up to their hovering yacht and then go back to Earth. And we have what comes close to being the same kind of twist that the movie does, but it's a little bit less impactful. They get to Earth, and indeed, gorillas are waiting for him. It's not like they come and beat him there from Soros. It's implied that what happens on Soros could just as easily one day happen on Earth. I think what the movie does is much cleaner. It makes it much scarier to think that we did it to ourselves here on Earth than to think one day, maybe, you never know, keep an eye on those gorillas because they, they might take over. I, I don't think that works as well. Again, I don't think this is science fiction. I don't think the plausibility factor is very high here. There's also a second ending, as it were. After I finished this novel, I put it aside. I was like, well, that was kind of a silly ending. And then I was, in my research for preparing for this Books and Nachos, realized that it did not contain the final chapter. There is a frame story, and in some editions, the end to that frame story was not included. The very first chapter I skipped over, but it was about Jen and Phyllis jaunting around on holiday who find a message in a bottle. And they pull out the message and they're reading it. And it's this story from Yuli. It's Yuli explaining everything that happened to him when he went to Soros. Well, if you don't know what happens next, you might just think that that's a silly way of getting things started. But no, in fact, the twist ending, the better twist ending than them coming back and finding gorillas waiting for them on the launch pad is that Jen and Phyllis 
are gorillas as well. This is sometime well into the future of 2500, and they're jaunting around just like the Frenchmen were jaunting around the universe. Reading this, they laugh. They're like, oh, we can't imagine ever a human being having the ability to write, having the ability to get into a spaceship and fly around. So basically, what it's implying is human beings are going to be made extinct, and that all of our legacy, all of our culture will be forgotten, and apes will take over and make our same mistakes. Okay, I'll go ahead and say it. The Statue of Liberty is better. The movie is better. Maybe it reads different and it's native French, but the prose here is clunky. It's a satire that isn't particularly funny. It doesn't go far enough into the comedy for it to work for me in, in as a satire. And yet I also can't treat the premise the way that it's constructed as being realistic. It's a curiosity. I would say read Planet of the Apes if you're a fan of that movie series and you want to see the origins of that species. It's interesting to watch what was first originated by one man before Hollywood got involved. But I think they improved on it. I'm surprised that the old adage that the book is always better is proven false here. The book is definitely not better than Planet of the Apes. And so if you want to hear my thoughts on Planet of the Apes, please join me, Arnie Jacob, on those shows. You can hear them all by going to nowplayingpodcast.com, clicking the banner at the top of the page, and making a donation of $25 or more. You're going to get eight podcasts on Planet of the Apes from this Chuck Heston one. Tim Burton would remake this movie. There is going to be a new movie this summer. You get all of the Planet of the Apes Plus, we're doing other science fiction, and you're going to get all of that. You're going to get four Matrix movies, a trilogy, plus an animated companion, as well as a new science fiction, hopefully classic, from the Wachowskis this summer called Jupiter Ascending. All of that will be coming soon, and you'll be a part of that. So I hope you can join me for those movie discussions. And if you want to discuss more Planet of the Apes on the page, I'm going to do that too in about four weeks. There is Conspiracy on the Planet of the Apes and two books that are spun off from the Burton universe that I want to discuss in July. But before I get there, I want to talk about Odyssey. Next week on Now Playing, we will be covering the classic, one of my very favorite movies, 2001 A Space Odyssey. I'm going to follow along as we follow those two movies by reading the book's that were written simultaneously. I'll be covering next week on Books and Nachos, 2001 by Arthur C. Clarke, followed by his 2010, and then two sequels Arthur C. Clarke wrote that at this point have not even been made into movies. So four podcasts going on a space odyssey. I hope you can join me for that as well. It should be a lot of fun talking sci-fi this summer. Keep reading and we'll be discussing sci-fi all summer long. Thank you for listening to this episode of Books and Nachos. If you enjoyed this podcast, please help spread the word about our show by leaving us a five-star review on iTunes. You can also find dozens more book reviews at our website, booksandnachos.com. The music for Books and Nachos is The Right Prescription by Chai Weapon, which can be downloaded at podsafeaudio.com. Books and Nachos is a Venganza Media production, copyright 2014, all rights reserved, and no part of this show may be reproduced, repurposed, or redistributed without the written permission of Venganza Media Incorporated.